This is the East Trauma Cast. Welcome to the next Trauma Cast. Before we get started, we'd like to say thank you to Hemanetics for their generous and unrestricted educational grant for the Online Education Committee and Trauma Cast. I'm Lauren Dudas from West Virginia University, a trauma and acute care surgeon. I'm joined by Carrie Valdez. Though she needs no introduction, Carrie, remind us about yourself. Hi, everybody. Uh, I'm a acute care surgeon that works in West Michigan for a Spectrum Health. Today, we have Simon Fitzgerald, one of our returning moderators, to discuss a topic that's a bit of change of pace from our last couple discussions. Simon, can you introduce yourself, our topic, and our special guest? Uh, sure, and thanks for having me. This is Simon Fitzgerald. I'm a trauma surgeon and surgical intensivist in Brooklyn, New York. We have a special guest today, Dr. Joseph Sacron, and we'll focus not so much on surgical technique today, but more on the role of the trauma surgeon in shaping policy. So Joe, uh, why don't you tell our audience uh, where you work and a sentence or two about uh, what you do? Yeah, thanks so much, Simon, and thanks to Carrie and Lauren for having me. Again, it's always so fun to be part of this trauma cast. I'm a trauma surgeon, just like many of you, and I am at Johns Hopkins uh, University, where I currently head up emergency general surgery and really kind of working at what I consider is the intersection of medicine, public health, and public policy. And so really excited to be with all of you today. Thanks for joining us. You're also a a health policy fellow. Can you just tell us a little bit about what does that fellowship really mean and uh, what's, what's kind of the work that you've been doing in that role? I've always been approaching the care of these critically injured patients that we see Um, not just from the perspective of how do we approach them in the operating room or in our trauma center, but really kind of from the perspective of how do we prevent injuries from happening in the first place. And I think, you know, that public health lens that I've tried to take ended up illuminating, I think, a very important kind of aspect of this work, which is better understanding the public policy piece. And initially, as I was like going you know, through kind of my, you know, professional career, I ended up taking a year off and I went to the Kennedy School where I really, I think, developed some theoretical understanding of public policy, but I still couldn't really grasp how the sausage was made and like the legislative process. And so I wanted to, you know, combine that theoretical knowledge that I had with some practical skills of really being on the hill and being able to have the chance to understand how do you meld healthcare and public policy in order to do a better job for not just our patients, but for our communities all across America. Joe, could you please tell us what is the fellowship that you did? What did it involve and uh, what inspired you to do it? So the fellowship that I did was through the National Academy of Medicine, funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Officially, it's the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Health Policy Fellowship. And every year, they select a group of mid-career healthcare professionals, not just doctors, but, you know, nurses and psychologists and so forth. And it's it's a full-time program where it begins in September and goes through, you know, the following year. And the first few months is like this incredible orientation on the on healthcare in America at the national level. And if you remember, I did this and started it before COVID had begun. So we actually had gone down to the CDC and met with, at that time, the CDC director and the entire team. 
We also did essentially meet with folks from the administration, within HHS, within think tanks. So you really get this broad perspective of healthcare in America and how complex it is. During that process, you end up interviewing around either the executive branch or the legislative branch. Most people go into the legislative branch and you can interview with Senate offices, House offices, committees. It's really very open. And you try to find essentially a match. It's almost like the match process that we have for a residency and fellowship. I found that the best fit for me was going to be in the office of Senator Maggie Hassan. And it was terrific. And I think her roles on both the health committee as well as finance allowed me to see a broad perspective as it relates to healthcare. You spend essentially the entire time in their office as a health policy advisor. I sat on both her, her health policy team and her education team. What are some things you learned about the legislative process and the legislative bodies uh, in that experience? Just to quickly say that I was fortunate enough to join uh, Senator Maggie Hassan's office. She is a uh, senator from New Hampshire, and she's very interesting because she sits on both the HELP Committee, so Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions, as well as the Senate Finance Committee. And those are really important committees for healthcare because they essentially encompass the majority of healthcare in America. Specifically to your question, though, Simon, I think we learned some of this stuff, I think, back during elementary school, but it's very easy to forget kind of from a broad perspective how the legislative branch works. And when you think about it, it's really two houses, right? You have the Senate that has 100 members, and you have the House of Representatives that has 435 members. And states have a certain number of representatives depending upon their population. And so when you look at you know, these two different houses, it's critical to understand that they both have potentially similar roles, but also potentially different roles. And so happy to kind of go through some of the differences if you think that will be useful. What do you think healthcare workers who are interested in affecting policy, what do we need to know about the legislative bodies and process that, that you've learned that we can benefit from your experience? Yeah, Joe, like I'm a Canadian raised in America. I have an idea. I want it to become this law or policy. How does, how does that happen? Let's, let's start with some basics. Okay, so first is when you have, um, you know, house bills, when you think of house bills that are introduced, often what you'll see is you'll see this term HR, and that stands for House of Representatives. It's usually followed by a number. And that number is, for example, HR8, which was the universal background check bill. So that means that that was the eighth bill being introduced which at that time was in the first session of the 116th Congress. Now, when you think about these bills and how they're laid out, right, really anyone could write a bill, but in practice, they're written by a member of Congress's aides or aides of a committee. And when you think about these, that's very interesting because most of us are not trained how to write in you know, the legislative language that we often see, right? Now, the committees that these bills go to are, are very important because it's a little bit different when you compare the House versus the Senate. And I think if we can just quickly like highlight some of this, it may be useful. When you look at the House of Representatives, you currently have over 20 standing committees, which means they are continuously in operation. 
And you do have one select committee, which means that it can be used sometimes for special purposes. And you look at the most important committees that you have in the House that we often hear about. The first is the Ways and Means Committee. And the Ways and Means Committee is so important because this is the committee that first considers legislation around taxation. So it's the ways and means by which the government can actually fund itself. And so you can imagine how powerful this committee is. Who gets taxed? By how much? How much revenue is actually coming in? What will that do to that to the economy? And so this is a committee that is very specific to the House of Representatives. We we're talking about some of those differences. In general, bills can be introduced into the Senate or the House or both, but if it's something around taxation, that has to originate in the House of Representatives and it will go through the House and Ways and Means Committee. Now, you also have, of course, you know, the Budget Committee. You're getting a theme here that a lot of this are around the dollars. Another very powerful committee that exists. And this is, you know, essentially when you look at like the House Ways and Means Committee, right, which influences how the government gets its revenue, the Budget Committee actually decides what actually is the budget of the government. And so the president makes a proposed budget, but it's a budget committee that actually decides on what budget the Congress is going to actually vote for. And of course, then you have, you know, things like Appropriations Committee and Rules Committee. I think it's important to maybe highlight a difference between the House and the Senate, because the Senate also has a number of different committees. I think some of the differences in the Senate exist, for example, around foreign relations. So the Senate has this Foreign Relations Committee, and that's, again, one key distinction between the Senate and the House. And the way you can think about this is around, for example, treaties, right? The Senate Foreign Relations Committee is responsible for all treaties. So all treaties have to go through them. So this is just, again, one example of like, yes, there are very similar committees that exist on both the House side and the Senate side, but there's also some differences. And I just gave two of those examples. Of course, Carrie, back to your broader question, because you know I know this could go in a lot of different directions, right? Once a bill gets through either House, so either the House of Representatives or the Senate, it has to be voted on by the other House. So if a bill gets approved by the Senate, then it will go through the House of Representatives. If that same bill is approved with a simple majority, then it goes to the president. And at that point, the president can sign the bill, which in that case would make it law, or the president could veto the bill. And then that would require that both houses, in order to override it, have to have a two-thirds majority. And that happens very seldom, okay? So I'm going to stop there because that's a lot of information. But this is so complex. and, And I'll just say that even like after spending a year there, I have barely scratched the surface, right? I mean, it's just so many rules and things that happen, but it's important for us to understand it if we want to understand how to be effective. You just described a lot of gears and levers. Can you tell us how you engage them as a health policy fellow? So I did a couple of things. First of all, you can imagine that walking into, you know, the office of a U.S. senator, 
most of the people um, were like 10 years younger than me. <laughs> and you're walking into a situation that, you know, despite, you know, we're all surgeons, we have these graduate degrees and all these experiences, just because we have all of that doesn't mean you understand health policy or the complexity of healthcare policy. So the first thing that I did, I went in there with an open mind and the willingness to just learn from them versus me coming in there and thinking that I was going to tell them how things should be done. I think this lesson can be a lesson for everything that we do in life. It's all about relationships, right? That really disarmed them because they saw that I didn't come in with this chip on my shoulder and I really came in to number one, learn from them, and then to try to be as useful as possible to bring in the clinical knowledge that we see on the front line so that they can understand how we can really formulate the policy in a way that is most effective. The way I did it was I built those relationships and I made myself part of the team. And once I did that, they were all of a sudden becoming really open with hey, Joe, what do you think about, you know, this issue? Or, or, you know, you have a public health background. How do you think we should approach this? Or whether it was, you know, uh, preparing the senator before she was, you know, getting ready to go for, for one of the hearings or to speak with one of the senior officials within the administration. All of those things, I think, came about because we developed this relationship and this trust that allowed us to work cohesively together. And that should be a lesson that we all kind of keep in the back of our mind as we think about things that we're so passionate about that we want to move forward. What are the top three things you've learned over your year experience? Yeah, thanks, Lauren, for that question. You know, there's so many lessons that I think like one can learn from spending a year there where you're just like, you know, day in and day out. So here are the three takeaways. The first is that policy is better when healthcare professionals are involved from the start. So we need more of us to contribute to the policymaking process. And in order to do that, we have to better understand what the process is like and be willing to know that, you know, it's quite complex and, and things that may sound very simple to us on the front line are not so simple when you think about it as it's happening at a national level. The second is that, you know, all of us, I think, from time to time have these incredible ideas. And sometimes we may think they're the best ideas. Even if you have the best idea, if your strategy and approach to executing that idea is not done in the right way, you're going to fail. So having the best idea alone is not just the only key to success. And then the third is, and I know this may be a little bit hard to even like think about during these times where things seem so divided, but bipartisanship is, is the third idea and the diversity of ideas that we can get by really being willing to listen to other people. I, I truly believe that looking at things objectively and trying to be bipartisan is not just a good look for America, but it's legitimately better for America based because it results in legislation and policymaking that actually in general uh, will allow us to ensure that the most appropriate and effective laws are put in place. All right, so I have an idea. I'm going to launch it into the Ways and Means Committee to start. Let's say it keeps kind of going through the different committees you described, and, and everyone's like, yeah, this is awesome. This is great. How do you get buy-in for bipartisanship, as one example, or buy-in from committees who are in charge of money? Like, how do you 
take this great idea and not let it just wither and die and actually make it a bill or a policy? So the first thing that you do, I had a chance to see this firsthand in a variety of different, very complex issues. The first thing that you have to do once you have an idea is you have to sit down and figure out who are all the stakeholders. The background research and homework that you do is so critical to ensuring success of your idea. And the one thing that is really beautiful about, you know, being at a place like Capitol Hill is there's something called the Congressional Research Service. And this is essentially a body of individuals that their focus is to provide, you know, members of the House of Representatives or Senate with essentially information and research about any topic. So, you know, you have this idea about vaccination, you can say to them, hey, I got this, you know, idea, has anything ever been done on this? What's the, you know, latest and greatest? And they are incredible. So that is usually one of the first bodies that, that I would go to, to kind of get some background information. And then I'd figure out, okay, who are all the stakeholders? And, and that's critical because no one wants to be left out. I mean, people, you know, don't want to find out when you're introducing a bill that you've gone through this whole process and, and, and they weren't included. So when we were working, for example, on, you know, our vaccine bill, right, we had different nonprofits and organizations and think tanks, whether it was like the CDC or, you know, vaccinate your family or the FDA or the American Academy of Pediatrics, we brought in all of these different individuals, right? And including, by the way, the administration to ensure that we had all the right information because that is so critical to figuring out what is the process that currently exists and take your idea from this, whatever simple idea it is and ensure that the process isn't already there. And if it's already there, but it needs to be, you know, maybe bolstered or advanced a little bit, you understand what currently is in place. And that's what we did many times. And I think that's a strategy that sometimes people underestimate how critical it is, because when you do that, you're also more likely at the end of the day to get co-sponsors, especially co-sponsors from the other side of the aisle, because they've seen that you've been diligent and you've gone through all the different necessary pieces. So I think we understand a little bit more what happens on Capitol Hill, but you know, me as an average surgeon out there, how do I get involved or how do I make my ideas or something that I'm passionate about come to fruition? So uh, it's, a really, it's a really good question, Lauren. And I think th there's a lot of different ways to be involved. I, I think you know, one of the most you know, simple ways is to actually reach out to your elected officials within your own community or your state. I, I never really appreciated how seriously elected officials take calls from their constituents. Our, I can tell you our office in our center, we would do our very best to respond to every call or email. And you really? can imagine how many come in. I mean, it's thousands, right? And I'm not saying that they happen like all like in day one, like sometimes it takes months to respond back. But the point is, is that elected officials take this very seriously. So I think like just being willing to like engage with them, I think is critical. But then here's the, here's the other piece that I think 
sometimes in like medicine and in, in healthcare, like, right, we're all researchers, we're scientists, and we're so focused on the data and the data is important. But Carrie and I have talked about this before, you know, the data itself doesn't like change the hearts and minds of people. So figuring out, like, how do you actually communicate that data, communicate the message in a way that resonates. And I think one of the things that I saw, you know, firsthand, I saw a lot of, you know, when I was sitting on the other side in the Senate office, and before we were all working from home from a COVID perspective, we'd have people come in and you can very easily see what's effective and what's not effective. And some of the most effective individuals were people that were coming in, telling their own personal stories or telling stories of their patients, right? Those are the things that really tug at, you know, these incredible staffers that you have both in the House and in the Senate. And so learning how to tell your story and learning the fact that it's getting people to believe in what you believe in, it's the, it's the why. And in order to go from that value, whatever that why is for you, right, to action, it's done by emotion, by being able to tell that story. And so I think sometimes we underestimate it. We think, oh, it's a little bit soft, but it's so <laughs> critical. That's, I think, you know, ways and lessons that are kind of important to think about. This is piggybacking on the last question, but how can our professional organizations be more effective at engaging and shaping policy? So I think one of the things that I think is very critical, and we, and we see kind of the college doing this really well with their DC office, is really trying to bring in not just the great ideas that members have, but the ideas that also from a timing perspective are pertinent to what's happening around the landscape, whether it's healthcare landscape or other pieces that, that are important to us. And I, and I think sometimes figuring out how to marry those two is so critical because the reality is, is that, again, we may have, there may be a lot of things that people across our organization are very passionate about or want to see get done, but it may just not be the right time. And so I think keeping that from an organizational perspective in consideration with what's happening, I think is very important. I think the second piece is actually being willing to actually, you know, go down again. I know we're in COVID right now, but let's pretend we're not to actually be able to willing to go down and actually talk to, you know, the staffers and the members. I think sometimes people get a little bit discouraged because they might not see the member during their visit. The staffer, let me just tell you, the staffers are just as important, if not more important, because they drive everything that happens in a lot of ways. And so I would just say, like, let's not underestimate that. And then the, the third piece, Simon, is, you know, we see these like letters that will often be produced by organizations and then they'll get other individuals to sign on to them. Those are fine, but those are not as effective in my mind as someone calling up, you know, whether it's the DC office or the local office and having a conversation with someone. In fact, I've heard comments throughout the year by a couple staffers, not everyone feels this way, but they're like, oh, this is just another, you know, templated letter that's coming in and they get hundreds, if not thousands of them a day. So I'm not sure necessarily that's the most effective thing. It's fine to have it as part of what we do, but the actual interactions 
calling them up, sending them personal emails, they will respond back. People want to know what the problems are and how they can be part of helping us fix them. And the last thing I will say, I, I think that a lot of us, and I'll put myself even in that, in this category, like early on, we're kind of timid about doing it. We're like, oh my gosh, like, you know, these are like elected officials and like, I don't know how to do it. And like, how am I going to approach them? I don't know what to say. They are just afraid of us as we are of them. <laughs> and at the end of the day, they're just, they're just people. I mean, like, I know sometimes we hold them up on a pedestal, but they are just people. They're regular people like you and I, they want to hear what the problems are. You don't have to come in with this big fancy speech. You just go in there, you know, you're prepared, obviously, but you go in there and you talk to them and you tell them what your story is. You tell them what the issues are and they will listen. And I'm not saying like that's going to all of a sudden, okay, tomorrow it's going to change. But many of these things, it takes time to move the needle forward. But that's important because when you actually do move that needle forward, the impact that you have is so tremendous because it's affecting millions of people. That's what I would say we could be doing a little bit better, Simon. So to pivot just a bit, um, the easy question is like, what's the number one healthcare policy issue in America? And everyone would say COVID, right? I guess if we took COVID and set it aside, and I asked you that question in six, 12, 18 months, I said, what's some of the top priorities for healthcare policy in America? What do you think are top priorities right now? One of the things that we're going to see a significant, a significant focus on, and we've already seen this kind of play out around the COVID issue, is health equity and achieving health equity. The disparities that exist across America are tremendous. And I think what this public health pandemic did was it illuminated and it shined a light on the disparities that we have had for many, many years. And right? you're talking disparities of like, like all diseases, heart disease, cancers, everything. Exactly, exactly. It's not just, we're, right now we're talking about, you know, vulnerable patients and brown and black communities that are, you know, being impacted by, you know, COVID, right? But they're also even, impacted by all these other diseases as you're alluding to, right? And even disparities in vaccine access now, right? No, exactly. That's what I mean by, you know, the disparities in COVID. And of course, you know, even, you know, the hesitancy that exists with brown and black communities being willing to actually be vaccinated. Yeah, that's and right. of course, they're also the most vulnerable population. So you can see how, I mean, it's a real problem. So we've been doing a lot of work with the Satcher Health Leadership Institute uh, at Morehouse to really think about this, you know, at a broader scale. And how do we track this data? And how do we really understand what's happening out there, not just within COVID, but with all these different processes? So I think that's going to be a really big issue. I think when you think about, you know, what's near and dear to so many of our hearts, and you think about the approach to, you know, care of the injured patient, the approach to, you know, kind of public health infrastructure, what we have seen in America is that our public health infrastructure is very weak. And our ability to respond to disasters at a national level is, is not adequate. When you think about prior disasters, some of the differences that we have seen is that, you know, responding to one local region, the government can probably figure out how to respond to that and provide the necessary access and resources, right? But when you're asking 
the federal government to respond to the entire country, we've clearly seen that right now we don't have the infrastructure for that. And I think part of the reason that it's such a problem is we don't have the, the regional system in place to be able to assist the federal government in that type of response. Some areas and, and locations do it better than others. And we've heard about these regional medical operation centers. You know, Texas has a very robust one. I think Seattle's another one, right? We need to figure out how do we really develop that infrastructure? Because, you know, right now we're dealing with COVID, but at some point in the future, we're gonna be faced with another issue that we're gonna to have, to have to approach. Along those lines, if I can just kind of say one more thing, I think a lot of us in this community are also talking about in the same realm, developing a national trauma system. Mm -hmm. We heard this discussed in the NASM report that was published a few years back. And a lot of us are talking about it to figure out if you're injured, no one wakes up expecting to be injured. Guess what? If they get injured, they expect to be taken care of. And right now, if you get in your car and you drive from the East Coast to the West Coast, your outcomes are dependent upon where you crash. And this is not a knock on like what we've done over the past 50 years to regionalize trauma care. I think it's been tremendous, but not everyone has that type of access. So that's gonna be another important piece. And of course, I'd like to see the rest of the states have Medicaid expansion. I mean, there's a lot of different things that we need to be kind of doing, I think, to ensure that we're uh, providing high quality access and care to Americans, especially those that are most vulnerable. Yeah, no, I hear you. And I, I, I uh, trained in D.C. and, and, and not, not D.C. at all. I, I left all my training institutions. But to have five level one centers within seven miles of each other. But if you drive 50 miles west, there's nothing. You know, if you drive 100 miles west, what if you go 200 miles west? What if you're in the middle of Tennessee? A national trauma system. I mean, that would be like fantasy. <laughs> like have a whole, whole country networked into each other to who's got beds, who's got ICU, who's got availability. Who can afford to give up an ambulance for the next three hours to do a transport, right? That all, all stuff kind of falls into your health policy. So how do you take something like that that you're thinking of and then make it happen? You know, right now, I can tell you this is something that a lot of us are working on. In fact, part of the um, Committee on Trauma for the American College of Surgeons, there's an active process right now that we have going on uh, under the advocacy pillar um, mm. to put together a framework of Number one, what does what is this idea? Why is it needed? Who would fund it? And how do you execute it? So we're yeah. doing exactly what I was telling you about, which is trying to figure out like, okay, what is this actual idea that we're talking about? And how do you put it in terms that actually makes people understand why it's so important? We're trying to figure out who all the stakeholders are. And then we're, you know, hopefully gonna have a robust effort through the American College of Surgeons and hopefully other organizations like EAST and the AAST to really approach this as a community of individuals to allow elected officials to understand why this issue is so critical and why we need to, to have it happen. Will it happen in this cycle? Who knows? Of course, like many things, it's probably going to be very difficult. But I think we're taking all those steps because if you think about so many things in our country, right, they didn't happen overnight. And you look at, you know, things like NHTSA, right? And how NHTSA started and now where it's at. I mean, right? No one ever thought it was going to be such an incredible governing body. And so we're trying to take those steps, Carrie. I think that we're just kind of at the beginning phases of that.
I have a question a little bit more about process, Joe, but especially thinking as a sort of junior attending, I think we all know how to become trained as an academic surgeon, as a clinician, uh, an educator, and a researcher. Uh, but what you've done particularly well, in addition to giving really good interviews uh, on, to the media, uh, is that role in the halls of Congress as a policy advisor. Maybe you have a better sense. I don't know how a young surgeon would pursue building up that pillar of their professional career. How does someone go about, besides just retracing your steps, to investing in that professional development? I think that there's there's a number of ways. Okay, so first of all, let me just say that I took a very non-traditional path. I think as I've approached kind of my my career, initially when I was in, you know, fellowship, I'm like, okay, you know, I got to get a K, I got to do an R01, I got to do all these things. And then I realized, wait, that's just not authentic to who I am. And it's what kind of Simon took me down this path of trying to figure out how do I carve out a path that resonates with what I'm interested in, my passion. And that's what led me to do things that help build up my knowledge and skills around public policy. So for me, you know, it was taking a year off and doing a public policy degree and then spending another year as a Congress doing the practical piece as well. But that's not the only way to do it, I think, as you're alluding to, right? And not everyone is going to have the time or the interest in spending that much of their life doing those things. So I think there are other different opportunities that often come out. There's a Brandeis Award, um, which allows people to spend uh, some time at Brandeis learning about public policy and specifically how it relates to healthcare. I'm pretty sure that both East as well as the American College of Surgeons puts out calls for that award every year. But there's also just kind of the personal interest that you take of reading up about these issues. I mean, when you think about what defines an expert, it's really kind of their fund of knowledge as it relates to a certain topic or issue. And so that personal investment, I think, is important because it allows you to figure out kind of really from a space perspective, what am I really interested in? Do I want to explore this any further? It may even result in allowing you to be able to decide, do I take a year off and spend a dedicated year focusing on public policy? So those are just some kind of examples. And then I think, you know, Simon, you've done a great job of this, of like being engaged at the community level. We shouldn't underestimate how important the local and state community is. People are always excited about the federal stuff, but most governing happens at the local and state level. And so I think really, you know, engaging with the community and understanding their issues and then trying to help them facilitate those allows you to be involved in some of those policymaking processes. You know, I met you in fellowship, but I saw you in uh, Baltimore City Hall just before that. So I know you have some experience engaging the local politics there. Anything that you want to say, what's different about engaging the local level compared to that national level? I mean, I think probably the showing up and building relationships part is the same, but what's different in those different uh, environments? Yeah, I would say it's easier to engage at the local level in general, and people are so willing and love to have individuals that want to understand what's happening within the community. And I think one of the most important pieces, and I would say in a lot of ways, critical, I don't know if I would call it a difference, Simon, but I would just say a critical step is listening. What you don't want to do 
communities are very sensitive. I think going into a community and like just spending time listening to them and understanding from them what their issues are. I think there's this, sometimes this tendency of like people thinking that they know that they have the right ideas and they wanna just walk in and implement solutions. That is like a huge mistake in my mind. You wanna listen. And if you, if you really truly listen with the, the intent to understand and you go in there and you, and you capture what's happening, it allows you to collect the necessary data to figure out, okay, what is the, actually the right path to solving some of these problems and solutions? I also will say, and I mean, you mentioned the Baltimore kind of piece, look like there's a lot of issues that are very sensitive to communities. And I think part of what, I, what I've learned over the years is you can be helpful to a community, but you can be helpful by not necessarily having to be the one that is front and center of driving that change. What I've tried to do is actually find leaders within the community that I can support however they feel is appropriate and have them drive the change. Because I think it's very different when you have people from within a community that are leading that change versus someone coming in from the outside and understanding the paradox that exists between institutions and communities is very critical. That all, those politics, you know, they say all politics are local. Those are very different than when you, you know, walk down to Capitol Hill and, and meet with your staffers or elected officials there. It's kind of a tangent, but how has you being involved in um, health policy and a public figure, no. a social media presence affected you clinically? Do patients come to you and want to talk about policy? And Yeah, so it, it's a really interesting that you asked that because, so in addition to the trauma and the emergency general surgery piece, I do a lot of elective general surgery. And every, like, I won't say every one of my patients, but I would say 95% of my patients know everything about me by the time they walk in. And I will tell you, and this is like something that should give us all hope. I took care of a, of, of a, of a patient that I won't mention, obviously. Uh, this patient is from a rural state in the Midwest, and he flew in for me to take care of his very complex ventral hernia. He came out and was telling me, hey, listen, I'm a Republican, I'm a gun owner, <laughs> and I wanna figure out how to support you in the work that you're doing because it's so important. And, you know, and him and I are now become very close. And uh, I would say almost even, you know, in some extent friends and we're figuring out how to work together. It just shows you that as Americans, we have a lot more in common than we have that divides us. Carrie, we've talked about this before, yeah. right? And yeah. you think about the perceptions and the stereotypes we have, here is a gentleman that most people will probably dismiss. And we're having this great conversation and we realize that, you know what, actually we both want the same things. Mm -hmm. So to your question, Lauren, a lot of them look me up, the majority I would say. And, you know, some of them say things, some of them don't, but I think that that definitely, you know, has driven to some really interesting conversations. I will also say, you know, we haven't really talked about a lot of the work that I'm focused on around gun violence prevention. It also, when my patients that look me up that have been shot, find out that I've also been shot and I'm a survivor, it allows me to relate to them in a way that is just hard to describe because I go from being this person wearing a white coat to someone that actually understands what they've been through. And those have been some really, really amazing relationships. Did you have any closing thoughts to bring it all together? 
You know, I sometimes think about how busy we are as surgeons, right? Just life is crazy, right? We're trying to, you know, take care of families and research and educate people and, you know, do all of that while taking care of our patients, which of course, I think hopefully for most of us is what's at the center of everything that we do in a lot of ways. And it's hard to kind of be involved in some of these things. And, you know, it's out of sight, out of mind sometimes. But I just want to say to everyone, you know, that's listening, that all of us, every single individual, right, we have a story to tell. We have a reason that we are doing the things that we do. So whatever you're passionate about, I just want people to know that you can be a really significant part of that change if you figure out how to do it the right way, if you bring in the right collaborators, and if you're really kind of following what I call purpose over position. And this is something that has really been very important to me of, you know, thinking about the fact that all of us as humans, we have ego, right? Ego is innate. But there's a difference of being driven by ego versus being driven by purpose. I think that if we always kind of keep that at the center and our drive is the purpose, we are going to be so effective in making a difference in the lives of people all across this country and even beyond. And for me personally, I wake up every day just kind of inspired to try to do everything I can to make community safer because I know that when I take my last breath, I want to know that I did everything I could and that I have no regrets, but I did everything that I could to make a difference and make this world just a little bit of a better place. So I believe in all of you, and I, I hope that you believe in yourself. Sometimes it's hard with everything else going on, but I think we can make a difference, and we should all work together to do that. Well, it has been really awesome to be able to speak with you. I'm sure all of our listeners are going to enjoy hearing your passion and knowledge. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast brought to you by the East Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, network and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the East.